So, you all believe in the sovereignty of God, right? Do you have a a working definition for what that really means in your life? Do you ever give much thought in your day-to-day life that there's a sovereign God? That God is sovereign means He's in charge, right? He's in control. And so I think of verses like Colossians 1.11. He causes all things, not most things, all things to work together for good. He works all things according to the counsel of His own will. Romans 8.28 says what? He causes all things to work together for good to those who love Him and follow according to His purpose. I found myself thinking this week a lot about the sovereignty of God. Tim and I were meeting on Tuesday. And one of the things that I wanted to talk with him and begin exploring is what do we need to do to launch our good news clubs in the fall? I'm having trouble with my voice this morning. And so as we were talking about that, Tim informs me that there's going to be a new principal at D.D. Johnston Elementary School. And I said, so she was there before we gave that huge gift of water to him, right? No, she hasn't even started yet. I go, oh man, I wonder if that's going to be a challenge for us. And his phone beeps and my phone beeps. And Maggie says, yay, my good friend Dr. Crystal Jones is the new principal at D.D. Johnson. (laughs) So Tim and I are praying and going, well, I guess God knows what we need before we ask, right? So I don't know where that's going to go, but I just thought, that's, that's just kind of amazing that God puts those pieces together. I told you, uh, either last Sunday or the Sunday before that, that ASSIST, our organization called ASSIST, that's helping us with our search for a new pastor. And uh, I told you that we had a candidate that we're getting ready to kind of move forward with. The search committee is this week calling references, and uh, Tim gave us that assignment this week. And so we're following up the one candidate that we have. Did I tell you last week that they've got two other guys that they're kind of doing paperwork with and trying to consider if they might be good fits for us? And so uh, Assist told us that last week. I thought I told you, but I'm not getting a lot of positive feedback from you all, so I'm not sure if I told you or if that's just in my in my memory or whatever. So, Assist has a couple of guys in the hopper that may or may not come our way. It just kind of depends. They're helping us vet them and kind of do some research. And so, in my life, about three or four months ago, uh, one of my bike riding buddies that I ride with two or three days a week introduced me to a friend of his in his church, who's an elder at his church over in Chino, And uh, so Gary Miller has been riding uh, with us uh, two or three days a week for the last three or four months. And so last Tuesday, as Tim and I were praying for the search and uh, what God's going to do, my friend Gary Miller calls. And I said, Gary, what's happening? He said, I have some questions. I said, why is that? He said, I want to know about your elder board. I said, why is that? He said, well, our youth pastor has applied for the position at your church. I thought, oh, that's interesting. So here in the sovereignty of God, I have a, a guy who's become a good friend of mine over the last few months, who's an elder at that church over in Chino. And anyway, I don't know what God's doing, but one thing I know for sure is what? God's sovereign. God's in control. God has a plan. And so just... Uh, it's kind of exciting to see God at work behind the scenes, isn't it? Because sometimes you forget, He's still there, He's still at work, things are coming together, the, you know, He's in charge. And, and we can relax and appreciate that, at least, at least I hope you can. I hope you'll plan to be here next Sunday. Uh, we're going to be asking two of our men, uh, Beck Gonzalez and Eddie Morales, to step up and become elders and join our, our group of uh, men that are charged with the spiritual health and uh, vibrancy of our congregation and oversight. And uh, so we're going to share a very special Sunday morning with them. Um, I'm preparing a special message to kind of talk about what's the role of an elder, what's the role of a congregation, and how's that going to work together. And just a lot of stuff some of you already know a lot about. Good reminders. Uh, It's going to be a great, great morning. So I hope you'll definitely uh, plan to be here. Let's pray. And just ask God's blessing on our time together. Lord, you are a sovereign God. And we say that so easily, and yet we find in our own lives, in our own hearts, we're so quick to 
get stressed out over stuff that seems to be out of our control, out of our hands. Uh, and we just, we stress over that. And I just pray that you help us to relax and to trust that you're the sovereign God, that uh, you do cause all things to work together for good. And that uh, we can just trust you. And so just make that part of our reminder this morning that we can trust you fully, completely and totally. Whatever it is in our life this week, whatever the challenge, whatever the difficulty, whatever the hurdle that's before us, um, you knew it was there, you knew it's been there, and uh, you have a plan, you have a purpose, and you're going to walk with us through that. And so I'm just grateful for that as we go forward into this day, into this week, and into the future that you have for us as a church, the future you have for us individually. So thank you for all of that as we give you praise together in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So how many of you have read the Declaration of Independence anytime in the recent past? Really? How many of you read it this last week? Yeah. How many of you read it this last month? Not getting as many hands. Last year, not going to get the rest of those hands. So what we celebrate on the 4th of July is what? What do we celebrate on the 4th of July? The signing of the Declaration of Independence. It is not celebrating the fact that we became independent. A document was signed. The Declaration of Independence. So the question I want to kind of wrap our thoughts around this morning is this. Is America... A Christian nation. Is America a Christian nation? Yes. So, a yes? yes. A couple of no's, a couple of maybes, we're not sure. Well, let, let's, let's talk about that a little bit this morning and uh, see where this goes. I've been thinking about this for a while. So, if you haven't figured this out yet after more than 10 months of me standing up here almost every Sunday morning, what, what happens here on Sunday morning when Roy stands here is that what, what I am sharing with you isn't simply something that I've sat over here and studied all week long. What I'm sharing with you is kind of the outflow of what God's doing here and here. And so you're kind, you're kind, you kind of get the overflow of what God's up to here, okay? And that may be good or bad that you'll have to decide that on your own. And so I've been thinking about this a lot. Our former president, Barack Obama, declared very loudly, very strongly, very clearly in 2009 that the United States of America is not a Christian nation. In fact, two years later, in, uh, he was preparing to go to Egypt on one of his trips. And he declared that America was now one of the largest Muslim countries in the world. And, and there's a reason he said that that made some sense, if I'm given that. But the question still remains in my heart and mind, is America a Christian nation? Interestingly, a talk show, radio talk show that took place, oh boy, 10 years ago? It's been a while. Anyway, this talk show, the guy who's the host of the talk show is a well-known agnostic. Does not believe in God, doesn't think you can believe in God either. You can't know, you can't know. And so in this radio broadcast, he's in dialogue with a guest on his radio program. And he says, I don't have it memorized, I have it written down, I could read it for you, but I'll give you the gist of what he said. He said, I don't understand why Christians think they had some kind of special role in the founding of this country. Anybody who reads the history books knows better than that. Yeah, so I said, huh. So, who would be the best authority on what the founding fathers believed about the establishment of the country that you and I call home and when we sing God Bless America. Who would be the best authorities on what the founding fathers believed about the founding of this country? The founding fathers. There we go. So I have about eight or nine quotes for you. And Dave's going to put these up for us one at a time. And so you're not going to have time to write it all down, but they will be on YouTube. And if you want, you can go back and capture them. So here's, here's the words of some of our founding fathers. Patrick Henry said this. 
And I'm kind of curious, can you read that all the way in the back, that size print? Good? Okay, I, that's a 32-point font, I wasn't sure it was big enough. So Patrick Henry, of course Patrick Henry was famous for one sentence, what was it? Good, you guys studied your history. Patrick Henry said, it cannot be emphasized too strongly or too often that this great nation was founded not by religionists, but by Christians. Not on religion, but on the gospel of Jesus Christ. Is that a powerful statement? Wow. Damn, look at this next one. Uh, The next one says this. Here's Thomas Jefferson. The First Amendment. Which one's the First Amendment? What is it? We're not sure. I can turn on. Freedom of speech? We might have to research that. The First Amendment has created a wall of separation between church and state, but that wall is a one-directional wall. It keeps the government from running the church. I started to read that ruining the church. Uh, I didn't figure type. Um, but it makes sure that Christian principles will always stay in government. That's an interesting take on the whole separation of church and state thing, isn't it? Look at this next one. Another founding father, John Adams. We have no government armed with power capable of contending with human passions unbridled by morality and religion. Our constitution was made for a moral and religious people. It is wholly inadequate to the government of any other. Is that prophetic? Like 2021? Wow. Here's another one. Here's the legislature of New York, 1838. This is a Christian nation. 9900s, if not a larger proportion of our whole population, believe in the general doctrines of the Christian religion. Wow. We've drifted a little ways from that 9900s, if not more. So in... 2009, the Pew Report does a survey. I don't know how often they do it, at least once a year, I think. But in 2009, they said that 77% of the population of the United States of America self-identified with the word Christian. Now that covers a a wide thing, right? Not all of those people that were willing to identify with that label identified theologically with me. No, with you. 77%. This year, the Pew Report says it's dropped 12 points. 65%. It's been steadily dropping over the last uh, many years. Steadily dropping. In fact, their surveys have been telling us for the last several years that the largest growing segment of our population, who, on the theme of religion, the largest segment of our population that's growing the fastest is a group who identify themselves with a single four-letter word. What is it? None. Don't identify with any religion. I thought that was interesting. 9900s. Look at the next one. Here's a Supreme Court decision back in 1892. Our lives and our institutions must necessarily be based upon and embody the teachings of who? The Redeemer of mankind. Now, who's that mystery Redeemer? Who who is that? It is impossible that it should be otherwise, and in this sense and to this extent, our civilization and our institutions are emphatically Christian. How many more do I have, David? I've lost track. John Jay, Chief Justice of the Supreme Court. Providence. Now, when when these guys use the word providence, what are they referring to? God. So he says, Providence has given to our people the choice of their rulers. And it is the duty, as well as the privilege and interest of our Christian nation, to select and prefer Christians for their rulers. You have to think about that for a couple minutes, what that's really saying. Is there one more name? I've really lost track. Here's Woodrow This is the last one, right? One more. Okay. Woodrow Wilson, in his famous address entitled The Bible and Progress, said this, America was born a Christian nation. America was born to exemplify that devotion to the elements of righteousness which are derived from the revelations of Holy Scripture. One more. 
Calvin Coolidge, our 30th president, he talked about these founding fathers. They were intent upon establishing a Christian commonwealth. In accordance with the principle of self-government, they were an inspired body of men. It has been said that God sifted the nations that he might send choice grain into the wilderness. Who can fail to see it in the hand of destiny? Who can doubt that it has been guided by a divine providence? So, the question this morning isn't, was America a Christian nation? That seems pretty clear from all these quotes, right? The question that I've been pondering is, is America a Christian nation? Got one more? I lose track? Oh, Ronald Reagan, I love Ronald. If we ever forget that we're one nation under God, then we'll be one nation gone under. (laughs) That's good. That's good. Thanks, guys. So, is America a Christian nation today in 2021? Well, if by that you mean the majority of the population is Christian, that's changing dramatically. So that definition is kind of out of it. If by a Christian nation you mean this nation still holds to and promotes biblical truth, biblical biblical principles, biblical morality, by that you would have to say, I'm not quite sure this is a Christian nation, right? So I have, a, I have a bigger problem, and this is kind of a Roy thing, because I like words. I don't do numbers, I do words. And so, what does the word Christian mean? Christ followers, what else does it mean? Someone who tries to live like Jesus? Oh, Maggie, you're going down my pathway now. So, when was the word Christian first uh, put into the vocabulary of humanity? When did that word first begin? And where was that word first dropped into our vocabulary? Acts chapter 11. The believers in the city of Antioch, very good, were first called Christians. Now, it is interesting as you study church history and the early church in the book of Acts, that the word Christian was not a positive term. It was a term of derision. And as Maggie just sort of whispered to me, and she had a louder stage voice when she has a microphone in her hand, but she just whispered to me, Little Christs. And that, that was the, the, the meaning behind that name that was given to what were previously called the followers of the way. Now they're called Christians because they're Little Christs. And that was seen as a, kind of a derogatory thing. Well, you and I don't use the word Christian in that manner, but I struggle personally a little bit with using the word Christian as an adjective. Now, you have to stick with me here, because I'm the word guy, right? You, you may be the number guy or gal, but I'm the word guy. So, we use the word Christian to describe a lot of things. I went to a college that was called a... Christian college. So, are all those buildings and that university over there in La Mirada, is it Christian? Well, it all depends on how you define the term Christian. I like to define the word Christian this way. Christ in one. A Christian is someone in whom Christ dwells. Does that work? Okay, one very enthusiastic, but I'll take it. So, can a bunch of buildings over there be a Christian bunch of buildings? Not by voice definition. Uh, we have a bookstore down here on the side of the freeway. Oh, is it still there in Whittier? Some of you Whittier people. Um, it's known as a Christian bookstore. Well, it is a building that houses uh, some books. What I call Jesus Junk and Holy Hardware, too. But um, 
Well, that's a whole other sermon, trust me. Yeah, if you want to quote me, it's Jesus Junk and Holy Hardware, um, plus a few books. But my point is, the word Christian, I don't like to apply it to stuff. And then, the word Christian means so many things to so many people. Have you discovered this? I have people ask me all the time, are you a Christian? How do you answer that question? Oh, you're getting nervous because you don't know where Roy's going. So, so, when someone asks me, are you a Christian? I say to them, I'm not sure. What's your definition of a Christian? Oh, now we're getting down to it. So, I have never responded to somebody and asked them, what is your definition of a Christian? And have them tell me a definition that I would live with. Doesn't happen. Because they've all got weird definitions of what it means to be a Christian. So, all of that to say, is America a Christian nation? I've got way deeper into this hole than I wanted to be. So, I want you to think about the founding fathers of our country for a minute. And I want you to think about three things that characterize them. And then what I want to do before we go to lunch is I want to compare what was true of those founding fathers 245 years ago when they finally signed the Declaration of Independence. I want to draw some parallels between what they did 245 years ago and what ought to be true of you and me today as Christians in this nation. So, three things characterize them. If you're taking notes, you're going to want to kind of figure out where Roy is. So, the first thing that characterized them is this. They made a bold declaration. A bold declaration. They paid a price for making that bold declaration. But, there was a great reward that came out of that bold declaration. So, the Declaration of Independence was first formulated on the 2nd of July, 1776. Uh, the, the Continental Congress that met the 56 representatives from the 13 colonies hashed out all the stuff. Of course, Thomas Jefferson was the wordsmith. And so for two more days, he finalized all the wording. And on July 4th, 1776, these guys signed the Declaration of Independence. And... It's kind of fascinating, actually, if you haven't read the Declaration of Independence in a long time. <clears throat> because basically the Declaration is, we want and we declare that we are going to have complete and total separation and freedom from King George and England. And Thomas Jefferson lists, I don't know, 20, 25 uh, reasons why their relationship with England is going to change. Bold declaration. And so the last paragraph of the Declaration of Independence says, therefore, and you've heard me say more than once, when you see the word therefore, you need to ask what it's therefore. Well, that's true in the Bible, and it's also true here, because it's the summary of everything that Thomas Jefferson wrote. Ten-point type, one piece of paper, half-inch margins. Therefore, we, the representatives of the United States of America, in general Congress, assembled, appealing to the supreme judge of the world. Who's that? God. For the rectitude of our intentions due in the name and by the authority of the good people of these colonies, solemnly publish and declare that these united colonies are and of right ought to be free and independent states, that they are absolved from all allegiance to the British crown, and that all political connection between them and the state of Great Britain is and ought to be totally dissolved, and that as free and independent states they have full power to levy war, conclude peace, contract alliances, establish commerce, to do all other acts and things which independent states may of right do. And for the support of this declaration, with a firm reliance on the protection of divine providence, we mutually pledge to each other our lives, our fortunes, and our sacred honor. This was a bold declaration. That we are severing our ties with Great Britain. 
bold declaration. They paid a price for that declaration. The entire, what we call today the United States, but the original 13 colonies, they paid an incredible price. Incredible price. Great Britain had a large, well-trained, well-equipped standing army. Great Britain had a large naval force that ruled the seas of the world. The United States, what we call the United States, the 13 colonies, had what? George Washington. George Washington. Go, George. Um, They had militias in the different colonies. And um, they had what were called citizen soldiers. So, you were a farmer. You raised crops. Some fed your family. You sold some of the crops so you could buy other stuff. You're a farmer. But you got a gun. You hunt for game to feed your family. You got it for self-defense. But you're not a soldier. You're a farmer. You're a shopkeeper. (laughs) You repair shoes. You make shoes. You bake bread. You're not... A soldier. I had a brief exchange on Facebook last night with a with a friend from the Long Beach Church 40 years ago. I haven't talked to Ron in 40 years, and I, I was I threw this quote out there that meant a lot to me. And he kind of came back and said, "Well, obviously we had an army because we had a general." Okay. Here, here's the greatest empire on the planet, and these 13 colonies declared, "We're done. We're going our own way. We're cutting ourselves off." Wow. They paid a price for that declaration. Um, (laughs) 7,200 Americans were killed in battle during the Revolutionary War. 8,200 were wounded. 10,000 died from disease and exposure. Nearly 3,000 died at Valley Forge alone. Remember the Valley Forge story, right? Additional 6,500 died in prison after being captured. 1,400 soldiers listed as missing. The 56 men who signed the Declaration of Independence, five were captured by the British, tortured before they died. Uh, Twelve had their homes ransacked and burned. Two lost their sons in the Revolutionary Army. Another two sons were captured. Nine of the 56 fought and died from the wounds of the hardship of war. They paid a price. Now, one of the things that's fascinating to me when you back away from that Declaration of Independence, the Revolutionary War, um, any of you remember the old Disney series, The Swamp Fox? A couple of us old gray heads nodding. If you remember some of those old Swamp Fox uh, episodes on uh, Disney, and this would be true in other movies back that would depict the Revolutionary War. There was a group of people that were residents in the 13 colonies who were called the Tories. Who were the Tories? They were the people that were not only sympathetic to Great Britain, but they were supportive of King George and Great Britain. One third of the population of the 13 colonies fell into that camp. They were sympathetic and supportive of what be, of who became the enemy of the 13 colonies. One third. One third of the population of the colonies was basically neutral, disinterested, uninvolved, not going to pick up arms. Not going to fight for the freedoms. Not going to do it. One third. So that leaves... Okay, now I need my math people to help me out here. That leaves what? One third. One third. There you go. Oh, you guys are so right. So that means one third of the population of the 13 colonies were actively engaged, serving with their little black powder 
musket fighting against the trained forces of Great Britain. One third went into combat. One third fought for freedom. One third of the population were actively involved. <clears throat> they paid a serious price. But the good news is they reaped a great reward, didn't they? Because in 1783, eight years, is that right? Eight years? Do the math, 1776. Yeah, seven years. I was close. Seven years after the signing of the Declaration of Independence, the Treaty of Paris took place, which was two years after Cornwallis and 10,000 British soldiers laid down their arms and surrendered. At the Treaty of Paris, Great Britain gave to the 13 colonies all of the rest of the land that they had occupied and claimed as theirs. All the rest of the land from the eastern seaboard all the way to where? Mississippi River. Very good. So they gained a chunk of land, huge chunk of land, but there were other rewards. They had freedom. Do you remember what the whole Boston Tea Party thing was about? Yes. Taxation without representation. And so they gained that, that freedom to govern themselves rather than having that government happening from all the way across the ocean. Two of those men who signed the Declaration of Independence, I think it's two, became president. Another, oh, I ought to just look at it instead of trying to go from my memory. I'm getting old. Okay. So 10 became U.S. congressmen, 19 became judges, 16 became governors, and others of political significance in office. And one of the things that struck me in this whole thing, thinking about the Declaration of Independence, Revolutionary War, everything that was accomplished, the goal was freedom. There you go. We talked about that a little earlier, right? Maggie took us down that road really well with that first medley. So the goal was freedom. And I found myself thinking, you know, it was pretty easy for these guys to gather in the Continental Congress. I don't know if they had a big table they sat around or in chairs. There's 56 of these guys. It's one thing for them to all be together in one room and to sign a document and say, we are committing our fortunes, our lives, our sacred honor to this mission, freedom. It's one thing to do that in a closed room with all your 56 guys. It's another thing to walk out of the door <coughs> and to go into a world and join combat against the greatest empire at that time. You ever wonder if that could have ever happened outside the scope of the sovereignty of God? And so I found myself thinking about that, and then kind of comparing that to you and to me as Christ followers. Because we too, if you have come, if you've come to trust Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, you have made a bold declaration. And maybe you would express it in different ways. But the bold declaration that you made when you put your faith and your trust in Christ is basically these three words. Jesus is Lord. I give to Jesus my allegiance. I devote myself to Jesus. He has my allegiance. To put it in the words of the Declaration of Independence, we pledge our lives, our fortunes, our sacred honor to Jesus. So, the Founding Fathers pledged their allegiance to a cause. You and I pledge allegiance to a person. Jesus. Yeah. So, when you stood up in elementary school for 18 years, or 
18 minus 5, 13. So in your 13 years of education from kindergarten to high school, if you're like me, every day you stood up in your classroom and your teacher or one of the students led you in the Pledge of Allegiance. And you were pledging allegiance to what? The flag. Well, it's not just any old flag. It's the flag... Pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America and to the Republic for which... It... So, so you're, you're pledging allegiance. Bold declaration. So we as Christians... If I understand my Bible, God calls you and me as Christ followers to boldly declare to the culture in which you and I live that that what? Jesus is Lord. My allegiance is to Him. What does that word allegiance mean? Devotion, honor, commitment. I think of that word allegiance and I think of priorities. (laughs) If I have pledged my allegiance to Jesus, he's a priority in my life, right? That wasn't very loud. And so God calls on you and me to make a bold declaration. And it's easy for us to do that in the confines of these four walls. Just like it was easy for those guys 245 years ago to make that declaration within the confines of the Continental Congress where they gather. It's another thing to boldly declare, Jesus is Lord, I am committed to Him, He has my allegiance, I am following Him. It's a whole other thing to do that outside of these four walls. It's a whole other thing. By the way, is there a price to pay for doing that? Sometimes, not always. Depends on where you are, who you're with. Jesus said, (laughs) In the world you will have tribulation. But be of good cheer, I've overcome the world. But you still have tribulation. G.K. Chesterton had this this quote that I was going to say I love it, but I hate it. Um, G.K. Chesterton said, Jesus promised his disciples three things. One, that they would be completely fearless. Man, I wish that was true. We're not completely fearless. We're not even fearless, let alone completely fearless. Now, if you want to see somebody who's completely fearless, come with, come with me and Ron to Boyle Heights. I'll show you a fearless dude, okay? Last time we were in Boyle Heights last month. Did I already tell you this story? Can I tell this story, Ron? Is it okay? Is it, we, don't, we don't want to scare people off. So, Ron and I are in Boyle Heights at Hollenbeck Park, and, and we're going in and, and meeting some of the homeless that are gathered there, and we're giving them some food. And we had one guy read the 23rd Psalm for us. We had a blast. But uh, we we were t- we had I don't know five or six junior high high school kids with us. I don't know how old they were. And all of a sudden, Ron says to them, "You kids, I'll get out of here," and chase them all away. And I wasn't quite sure what was going on because I didn't see the knife that, that Ron saw. Two guys were getting ready to rumble. And I said to Ron afterwards, "So how come you sent the kids away but let me stay?" <laughs> His exact words, and I quote, We are expendable. (laughs) And I said to Ron, I said, You need to tell Dave that because if something happens to me, he's got to preach on Sunday. (laughs) Where is I going with that? I don't know. You know, we're, we're not fearless. We're intimidated by our culture. We're intimidated by other people. We're intimidated because they disagree with us. We're not fearless. G.K. Chesterton said we would be completely fearless. Absurdly happy. Are you good with the absurdly happy part? 
I like absurdly happy and in constant trouble. Yeah. Yeah. So this whole declaration thing, um, there's going to be a price to pay. Didn't Jesus say stuff like, if any man will come after me, let him deny himself, say no to himself, right? Say deny equals say no. If any man will come after me, let him deny himself, say no to his own ambitions and will and desires. Deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. And somewhere in the history of the church, we have gotten this idea that taking up your cross means, well, that's just my burden. I've got to bear. You know, I've, oh, I've got this problem with my heart. There's this little uh, thing going on. That's just my cross to bear. You know, um, and we, we got a list of things that are our crosses to bear. What's the point of a cross? Is, is a cross designed to be put on someone's back and hauled around for the next three weeks? What was the purpose of a cross? Death. Execution. Death. And so we wear little crosses around our neck, and we, we like the cross. But the cross is a symbol of death. What if Jesus had said, take up... Take up your electric chair and follow me. <laughs> Take up your firing squad and follow me. Take up your gas chamber and follow me. It's execute death. The guys assigned the Declaration of Independence knew what was coming. We pledge our lives, our fortune, our sacred honor. We are called upon by the Lord that we say we love and serve, to boldly declare to this world in which we live, this culture in which we live, I am a follower of Jesus. My allegiance is to Him. And if I have to choose between having my allegiance to Jesus and my allegiance to America, which way am I voting? Jesus. I was a little weak, but I kind of got it. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> By the way, I'm sure the one-third one-third, one-third that was true 245 years ago. Remember I said one-third loyal to Britain, one-third disinterested, not involved, one-third in the battle. I'm not sure those same percentages prevail today, but we got the same three groups. We got the same three groups. In the Christian church, within the body of Christ, there are many who seem to still hold allegiance to the enemy, the evil one. Paul said we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers and rulers of darkness and high places, right? The Bible says of our enemy, he walks around like a roaring lion seeking to do what? Who he can devour. And yet it seems to me, this is kind of Roy's take on things, it seems to me there's a percentage of the Christian population that seems to be still pretty tightly tied to the enemy. We haven't turned our back on sinful stuff. We haven't turned our back on sinful ways. We find ourselves supportive of, can I call it a pagan America? Instead of a Christian America. So we live in a culture. I'll get you out of here in time for lunch. Don't panic. We live in a culture that stands boldly opposed to values. To the values that we say we believed in. We live in a culture opposed. Boldly, proudly opposed to the sanctity of life. Sixty million plus babies murdered before birth within the borders of this country. There's no longer conversation about, well, is it really a living being or not? That conversation went away years ago. What's the conversation now? 
Boy, some of you are getting really stressed, I can tell. So now the conversation is not about whether that embryo that now is a fetus that's growing within the woman's body, the question no longer is, is that a living human being? The issue now is what? I have a right to what happens to this body. Even if it means murdering, I'm using that word purposely, murdering a human life. So a whale washes up on the beach down here in Huntington Beach. People from all around gather to try to rescue and help and save that whale. And I could use other illustrations, there's dozens of them. Sanctity of life. Does this book uphold the sanctity of human life? Does this book exalt the creation that God has done in creating human life? How many states in our country today promote euthanasia? Doctors have the ability legally to provide someone with the ability to end their life. Or the doctor can do it for them. Does that make any sense to you? Especially if we're going to call it a Christian nation, the sanctity of life not important anymore. How about the sanctity of marriage? Whose idea was it for a man and a woman to get together? Whose idea was it for a man and a woman to get together and produce children? Whose idea was it for a man and a woman to commit themselves together? Whose idea was that? God's idea. It was fascinating when the scribes and the Pharisees got into it with Jesus on this topic. Jesus took them all the way back to the Garden of Eden. He says, you know, from the beginning it wasn't this way. The whole conversation about divorce, for example. And Jesus takes them all the way back to the Garden of Eden. He says, what was it like at the beginning? What did, what did God say all the way back at the beginning? What was the bottom line all the way back at the beginning of God's plan? The sovereign God, the sovereign creator of the universe. What is his plan? It's not good for a man to be alone. Is that true? <laughs> Duh. And then he says, A man shall leave father and mother, shall cleave to his wife, and they'll become one flesh. What does the word cleave mean? Sort of kind of hang out together for a few, a few months or a few years? What does that word cleave mean? You know, that Hebrew word is such a strong word of attachment. Our culture doesn't honor that anymore. The things that this book promotes and teaches our culture rejects. Our culture is boldly opposed. What does God believe about sex? What does this book promote about the sexual relationship between a man and a woman? Our culture has just destroyed that. And I don't even want to wander down the road of the LBGQ, XYZ, whatever, you know, that list of letters. And so, one of my concerns in this so-called Christian nation is it seems like there's a percentage of the Christian church, those who identify themselves as Christians, those who will go to church on a Sunday morning, but the stuff that they watch on television, the movies they watch... Promote all of that pagan stuff I just said God's opposed to. Pornography alone is destroying the country in which you and I live. It's a multi-billion dollar business. So one third of the population back then was kind of siding, favoring the enemy. And I think there's a percentage of the Christian population in America today that still kind of hangs on and supports the enemy. 
That bothers me a lot. That concerns me a lot. And then there's that group, maybe a lot more than a third, I don't know. But then there's that group that's basically uninvolved. They're not actively after the mission of freedom. They're not actively after the mission that Jesus entrusted to us. Go into all the world, make disciples of all nations. And then there's a very small percentage that are actively engaged in the mission. Very small percentage. Bill Bright, the founder of Campus Crusade for Christ, said for many years that his ministry and his conversations with people, he he said that fewer than 2% of Christians have ever shared their faith with another person. That's a lot lot less than one-third, right? And so this whole thing of bold declaration, price to pay. Deny yourself, take up your cross daily, follow me. Paul said, it's no longer longer I that live, it's what? Christ who lives in me. Christian. Christ in one. Boldly declaring, I'm a follower of Jesus. Boldly declaring, the Spirit of God lives within me. Boldly declaring, I believe what this book says and teaches. Boldly demonstrating by the way that I live my life, the things I choose for entertainment, the things that I embrace in the flow of my week, do they honor Jesus and honor this book, or do they honor the pagan culture that I live in? Well, it doesn't end there with a, we pay a price. I said those early founding fathers also had some rewards, right? Aren't you glad for the rewards that Jesus promises to you and to me? You know, the promise of forgiveness of sin. The promise of eternal life. Promises like, I'll never leave you or forsake you. Lo, I'm with you even to the end of the age. You know, when we go out these doors into the pagan world, we don't go by ourselves, right? We don't go by ourselves. When we go to Holland Beck Park tomorrow, we're not going by ourselves. I'm getting behind Ron. So, is this a Christian nation? I struggle to use that that word. It's a pagan, pagan culture. Desperately in need of the gospel. Desperately in need to know the truth. Desperately in need to know that there is true and real freedom. You know, we sang at least a couple of songs this morning that kind of talked about the cross and Jesus and freedom. The scripture says, you shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free. If the Son sets you free, you are free indeed. And so I think of all those great promises... And the great rewards. Is America a Christian nation? I don't think so. I'd be careful with that word personally. And we can disagree about that and still be friends, right? Okay, Tom. We're we're right. We're okay. That's all good. Okay. So which group are you in this morning? Are you in the group that's kind of still sympathetic to the enemy? Are you still holding on to the stuff of this pagan culture? If you look back over this last week in your life, the TV programs you watch, the things you expose yourself to, are you still kind of sympathetic to the enemy? Or have you cut the ties? Are you one who's content to boldly declare by walking in these doors and being inside these four walls that you're a follower of Jesus but you struggle to do it out there? Because we're not fearless. We're fearful. And the word fearful means full of fear. Are you still sympathetic to the enemy? Are you fearful and so you're in that group of uninvolved detached 
Or are you part of the people who've decided to go to battle, go to war? Things I read trouble me because it says we have lost the cultural battle. It's over. We have lost the cultural battle. We are not turning this country around. I hear that message all the time. We're way past that point. And even if that's true, guess what? I still would like us, Grace Brethren Church in Norwalk, I'd still like us to say, can I say it this way? Damn the torpedoes, full speed ahead. Is that okay? Then we're going to go out there, and we've lost the cultural battle. This pagan culture is not turning back around. It may, and I pray that it will, but... Whether it does or not, there's people out there that need to know Jesus. There's people out there that need to know the truth. And there's people out there that aren't going to hear the message, they're not going to hear the truth unless we boldly declare outside these four walls. Boldly declare. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. I'm way over time and you're paying attention to the clock. Um, Yeah, I'm going to say it. We learned a lot of lessons during COVID. I kind of have in the back of my mind a sermon where I'm going to talk about all the lessons we learned during COVID. One of the lessons we learned during COVID that bothers me a lot is that many Americans, including many Christians, prefer safety over freedom. We learned that through COVID. And I want to suggest to you it's not over. We are going to continue to be tested as Christ followers of whether we're more concerned about being safe or whether we're more concerned about being free. And I don't mean that just free as an American, but free as a Christian. Free to exercise our faith. Hillary Clinton, many years ago, made the observation that uh, she was very generous to grant us the freedom of worship. And she granted us the freedom of worship to mean you can exercise your Christian faith at all. You can exercise your Christian faith at church on Sunday morning. But don't do it out there. Well, as I read this document, it doesn't say we have freedom of worship. We have the government shall not prohibit the free exercise of religion. Not prohibited. Not just in these four walls, but out there. And I want to suggest to you, I'd love to be wrong. I don't have tea leaves or a little Aladdin lamp. But I want to suggest to you, it ain't going to get better. It's going to get tougher. It's going to get harder. It's going to be harder to declare out there what we declare freely in here. It's going to get harder. God help us to do that. Do we really value the freedom that Jesus has given us? Do we really value that? Nursery school teacher was teaching her little children about the 4th of July and Declaration of Independence and She told those children that it was all about being free. We are all free. And this little boy stood up and said, I'm not free, I'm four. (laughs) (laughs) Do you value the freedom that God has given to you? Not just as an American citizen, but do you value the freedom that Christ accomplished at the cross? going to be a challenge going forward. Boldly declare, there's a price to pay. But the rewards are great. 
Lord, I've talked way too long, but I've shared my heart the best I know how. And so I pray by your spirit you would use these, these thoughts, use these scriptures to trigger in our hearts and minds. Remind us of the great truth of scripture that righteousness exalts a nation, that sin is a reproach to any people. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. Lord, make us men and women, boys and girls, with hearts, with conviction, to boldly declare in this pagan, pagan culture that Jesus is Lord. That true, real, genuine freedom is found only in Him. Lord, give us boldness by Your Spirit to declare that truth. This is my prayer this morning, in Jesus' name.
And as proud as I am to be an American and I love this land, I'm much more prouder to be a follower of Jesus. Amen. It's, it's, it's Him that I love, Him that I follow, Him that I pledge allegiance to. And that's kind of what I wanted you to hear this morning. And I don't know what God wants to do that in your life this week. Um, I'm just praying that His Spirit will kind of poke and prod in each of our lives. Because our prayer this year is that we're following Jesus, right? You've heard me say many times, my prayer is that we'll follow Him a little more closely, love Him a little more deeply, serve Him a little more faithfully. That's my prayer. That's my hope. Every week. So let's do that. Let's boldly declare it to a pagan culture, a pagan world. I'm a follower of Jesus. I love Him. I stand by the truth of His, His Scriptures. Let's do that this week. Can we do that together? Pray for each other, support each other. Have a great week. God bless the USA, but more importantly, God bless you.